The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I'm Dan Roth, Editor-in-Chief here at LinkedIn, and welcome to This Is Working, a show where I talk with people who have an outsized impact on our world. And with me, I have my producer, as always, Laura. Hey, Dan. So this episode, we're going to be talking about a guy who's built his career around food. Exactly. Today on the show, we have Danny Meyer. He's the guy behind some of New York City's most loved restaurants, Union Square Cafe, Shake Shack, and many others. So why did you want Danny on the show? Well, first of all, I was kind of hoping he'd feed us, and <laughs> we did at least get some crawlers out of it. Danny is a not just a restaurateur, he's an entrepreneur. In fact, he's probably more of an entrepreneur than a restaurateur. That means that he goes with his gut instead of just following industry norms. And his gut told him very early on that hospitality was the secret to everything. That if you make hospitality your true north, everything else falls in line. Now, once he decided that, it meant that he made some unorthodox decisions. I'll give you some examples. So he made employees his highest priority. That means ranking employee needs over customer needs and even investor needs. He banned smoking at his restaurants years before he was required to. And most controversially, he killed tipping at his restaurants. He just said, we're done with tipping altogether. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't sound great for employees. They actually like getting tips and they like going home with cash. But Danny makes some really strong arguments on how it helps people build careers meaning that you can become a manager rather than worrying about not being a manager because you won't get tipped. It means that if you work in the back of the restaurant where you are legally not allowed to get tips, if you're a sous chef, if you're a dishwasher, you can start benefiting by the restaurant's growth. And it makes it much more of a normal business. So it's a really strong argument. I left convinced. I'll be very curious to hear whether our listeners feel the same way. And you'll hear a lot about how Danny thinks about his industry, how he thinks about the economy, and about how Danny manages his career and the careers of others. It's a great interview. Check it out. Here's our interview with Danny Meyer. Danny, thank you so much for joining us, really having us here at your restaurant. It is great to be at the Union Square Cafe. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I want to start off looking at your overall portfolio. You are someone who runs and has started some of the best-known restaurants in the U.S. You run, you're, you're the chairman and founder of a uh, of Shake Shack, massive chain, thousands of employees, hundreds of locations, and you have a private equity enterprise as well. I'm curious how you think about yourself. Are you a restaurateur, an investor, a um, an entrepreneur? When people ask what you do, what do you say? I say that um, I'm a I'm a emerging product. <laughs> I'm not really sure. You know, for many many years it was very easy. I was a restaurateur first 10 years of my career, I had one restaurant, Union Square Cafe, the original Union Square Cafe, which lost its lease after 30 years, and that's why we're here right now. That, that's been quite a, a wonderful journey. But my entire self-identity was wrapped up in being the guy at the front door and the guy greeting you at your table and suggesting the wine and picking the chef and working with the chef on how to word the menu and meeting all the farmers in the green market. And I still love doing all that stuff, but I'd say for the, for the second part of my career, um, once there became five restaurants, I finally looked at myself and said, you're an idiot if, if you think that 
you actually have any measure of control over what's going on around here. And I couldn't be at every front door of every restaurant, obviously. And I couldn't hire every single employee. And I couldn't check every painting in the restaurant to make sure that it was level. I still look at all that stuff, but that's the point at which I said, guess what? You got to be the CEO of a restaurant company. And I'd say that right now, if anything, I, I definitely feel that way, but we are sprawling. We, we have so many different kinds of things, as you just said. And if anything, I, I look at myself as being the executive producer of a, of a pretty cool studio. And the studio has some really, really gifted talent. And it's my job to pick the talent, pick the films we're going to choose to do, and importantly, the films we're not going to do, and then let them go. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really, um, I, I think I take my greatest pleasure in picking teams and then watching them thrive. In the early days, actually, even th through the first decade, you were still insistent on having restaurants that were within walking distance of each other. You could go and visit all your restaurants during the day. To go from that to being an executive producer who is just launching stuff and deciding not to and then watching to see what happens, what's been the process to learn how to give up control? It's a dance, and it, it never... I, I wouldn't say I've mastered it yet by any means. In, in real life, I'm a pretty bad dancer. In the world of being an executive producer, uh, the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, I have a, a longtime business partner who I adore. We've been working together since 1996, and he knows me pretty well. We can complete each other's sentences. And I don't know if this is uh, offensive, what he said to me once, but he said, you, have, you, Danny, have a very rare case of ADD and OCD all at the same time. You cannot keep track of all the things that you're obsessed about. Mm -hmm. And I kind of know what he means. I've just, I'm curious, and I've never met an exciting what-if moment without saying, yeah, what if? Why don't we try that? We could add something to that. A lot of times I, I find that we cannot add something. We've never, for example, opened a steak restaurant. I'm not saying we never would, but I haven't figured out what we would add to the dialogue on opening a steak restaurant. But when my college roommate uh, came up to me one day a few years ago and said, you know, I'm kind of tired of the investment banking world. Why don't we think about starting a fund to invest in other businesses whose culture is what you guys call enlightened hospitality, who put employees first even before customers, and then community and suppliers even before investors. Why don't we do that? I said, yeah, what if? What if, what if we could add something to the dialogue on private equity um, because of the approach that we take? And so we do all these things, and at the end of the day, you could say we have a sprawling mess, but you could also say we have one company that believes that hospitality is the guiding principle of success in almost any business. The way you make your, your stakeholders feel in a business is truly the thing that sets businesses apart. And so for that reason, we can have a jazz club. We can have an events company that serves food on Delta Airlines or serves food at ballparks or in airports or for 4,000 people at, at the Robin Hood 
benefit dinner. Um, we can have a Michelin-starred restaurant like the Modern at the Museum of Modern Art, but we could also have a barbecue restaurant like Blue Smoke. And is that what ties it all together? Is the, is that th is the thread the hospitality? The thread is the hospitality. And in some ways, I'm, I know I, I, I just got done making a film studio metaphor, but I also sometimes think about the FM band on the radio or Sirius XM, yeah. let's say. Or take LinkedIn. You have one brand with many channels. Mm -hmm. And the key thing is to ask yourself, what do each of those channels uniquely have in common? What's the thumbprint that you would find on every single one of those that, that really starts with the brand, in our case, Union Square Hospitality Group? And in our case, it's this really fascinating alchemy between doing something as well as we can do it with as much thoughtfulness as we can do it in a way that makes people's lives feel better. One of the words that you didn't use there was food or restaurants. Does that mean that you could see taking this approach and applying it elsewhere? Hotels, cars, trains, I don't, I don't know where else it ex expands. Well, I, I think what, the world takes yeah. this approach elsewhere. I'm not particularly interested. Why not? Whoever I, said you couldn't. Whoever wrote the rule, you yeah. can't do it. Uh, I think there's a limited number of hours in the day, and, and I, I think that the hospitality approach is highly, highly transferable. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of public speaking, and most of the companies that ask me to speak have nothing to do with restaurants whatsoever. I've been on public boards that have nothing to do with restaurants and food. They are businesses that understand that in a day and age when what you know how to do is completely knowable by everybody, and the very thing that used to distinguish you in the old days, doing something better than everybody else, has a pretty short shelf life because the word gets out pretty quickly how you do something. These businesses understand that the, the true defining factor, competitive advantage, is how did you make everybody feel, starting with the people who work for you because that's our biggest competitive advantage. Well, I love your approach to managing employees. You have a number of... Um ways of thinking about employees that I think are slightly different than the way other companies think. Um, one is you put your, when you list out who is, who are the most important constituents in your company, employees come first. Uh, you've written about the fact that hiring and recruiting is the single biggest determinant of success. Um, and you've done things for employees that other restaurants uh, don't do, like for instance, getting rid of tipping, making sure that you are thinking about the chefs, that the chefs are getting paid, putting people on career tracks. How, are you surprised that other people, you talked about the short shelf life of ideas, how quickly they get out there, how easily they are to copy. Are people copying your ideas? And if they're not, are you surprised that this hasn't just become so mainstream that, that people aren't even bringing this up with you anymore? Well, I think, I think you know, once the internet was invented, people who are not building upon the ideas of others are just missing out on the greatest opportunity out there. You can, I think we're in a day and age where knowing facts is, is a lot less useful than it once was. I do think that the opportunity to link facts together and connect the dots is, 
is what makes the greatest innovators innovate. And so something that I love doing, we call it ABCD so you can ABCD. And I really don't know of a better platform than LinkedIn to do that. When we say that, we mean always be collecting dots so you can always be connecting dots. Mm -hmm. And I think that connecting dots is where innovation happens. And sometimes in my world, it's connecting your, your heart and your brain as well. I'm, I'm a big believer in thoughtfulness. And I think thoughtfulness, I think the word itself is a connection between thinking and feeling. Um, and I think that those ideas are the ones that, that resonate the most. And what I'd like to do often is to kind of search in my own personal heart-filled file cabinet of memories. Um, just learned that you and I went to the same camp. I competed in the cooking competition there, um, tied for first place. Chef's cap, right? Chef's cap. Chef's cap. Would have won it except for my uh, cake cooked over the open fire, slid into the fire, and, and the judge tasted some embers between the two layers of cake. But my chicken kicked butt, that's for sure. But I I'll go back to that moment and say, whoever wrote the rule that I couldn't figure out a way to do that lemon chicken even better today. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you go back to those early moments that stayed with you, and you connect those to what you now know technique-wise, that's where innovation really happens. I don't really care who copies us, um, and I hope they don't care when I copy them. Look, my, if you were to look at my photo stream in my smartphone, there are so many ideas that I see around the world. It, it might be in a restaurant, it might be in a storefront, I might see a, a sign on a street, I might see a, something in nature, but when I see something that I go, I got it, I could connect that to something we're doing that's gonna make someone feel better, I'll, I'll take that idea. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I can think of three areas where you didn't just connect dots, but you then pushed the state of the industry or went beyond what other people were doing because you thought it was the right thing to do. You banned smoking in a restaurant before that was before you had to. You put a minimum wage, you increased the minimum wage at your own restaurants before the $15 minimum wage kicked in. And you stopped tipping in most of your restaurants. All of your restaurants? Most of your restaurants. Almost all. We're, we're almost there. We've 
We have converted every restaurant about one every four to six months because it's not an easy process whatsoever, and we're almost there. Are you, the tipping one you kicked off in 2015, mm -hmm. are you surprised that hasn't gone mainstream? I'm not at all surprised because, as I just said, it's, it's a really hard thing. You are fighting a social norm that's been in place for a couple hundred years in this country. Mm -hmm. And tip, I've, I've learned a lot about tipping. Tipping is held on to tightly uh, by our industry because basically we've had it really, really, uh, we've had it really good if you want to just look at it from an economic standpoint. We make our customers feel that the menu price is what you're paying when in fact it's not. You know, when you go to buy a suit, you don't have a 20% charge on top of that because of how well the uh, salesperson took care of you. That's, that's the store's job to pay that. When you fly an airplane, you don't have a 20% upcharge for how well the flight attendant took care of you. Yeah, on and on and on. Your lawyer, whatever that massive sticker price is right. they charge you, you don't tip on top of it. And our industry has it has this scheme where that's the expectation. And so why would they want to change that? And then if you're a customer, if you've been led to believe that the tip, that the opportunity to tip gives you the opportunity to be someone's employer for two hours and that you have the opportunity to punish bad service and to reward really good service and that you really believe that 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 is going to inspire different behavior, um, then you don't want to give it up. And if you're an employee, you may not want to give it up either because it's kind of fun every time you get a tip. It's like ringing the bell. Right. And it's a Pavlovian response. And by the way, going home with some bucks in your pocket, if you're a freelance worker, it's not a terrible thing. So you may say, well, What's wrong with all that stuff? You know, everybody seems to be winning. Um, even the government is winning because the government found a way to uh, incentivize restaurants to make sure that their employees paid taxes on tips by giving something called the tip credit. And it's like and, a, like a $1.1 million tax credit that you are not getting by. In my company, in case, that's right? correct. That's correct. We, f we forewent. A, a, a roughly a million dollars in our pocket the minute we eliminated tipping. So why would I take that on? I take it on because I feel even more strongly that as is the case with almost every single professional career, that the merit of your performance is what you should be paid for and what you should be hired for as well. And frankly, what I saw after years and years of, of hosting a tip system in our restaurants were a number of problems that, that I could not change so long as we had tipping. Problem number one, with every passing year, for one reason or another, menu prices go up. I don't recall the year where menu prices went down. It could be higher insurance rates, it could be higher prices for supplies, meat, fish, produce, um, electricity, you name it. Menu prices go up. Every time the menu price goes up, 
people who get tips make more money because if you are a 20% tipper, you're always a 20% tipper, right. and your 20% is strictly a multiplier of our menu price. So that becomes a windfall. It also becomes a windfall, I might add, for landlords who are collecting percentage rent. Hmm. So that's another constituent who doesn't want to see tips go away, okay? Hmm. If you are a non-tipped employee, prohibited by most laws, and it's very confusing because there are federal laws, there are state laws, et cetera, that don't always agree with one another. If you're a non-tipped employee, and that is essentially cooks, um, reservationists, dishwashers, um, anybody who's not spending the preponderance of their time facing the guests is not legally permitted to collect tips. Their compensation when the menu prices go up stays the same. And I can prove that because over the course of my career, the compensation for tipped employees went up about 300% and the compensation for non-tipped employees went up about 30%. That's not fair. And that, it mirrors some of the parts of our economy in the United States that, and actually in the entire world that isn't really working right now. That's thing number one. Thing number two, our industry is fantastic as a first job opportunity for a lot of people. If you have a work ethic and a heart for hospitality, you don't need to have gone to school specifically for our industry. Now, that's different if you're gonna be a cook in a you know a highly skilled type of restaurant with many stars and all that kind of thing, but we're really, really good at opening the door right. and letting people in. What we're not so good at, historically, is providing a growth path, a professional growth path. And so when I look at the tipping system, and I saw that in the dining room, we have so many terrific people who cannot make a career in the dining room, in the front of the house, because the tipped employees are actually making about 25% more than the managers. Why in the world would anyone take a 25% pay cut in order to become a manager? So and I said- have career paths, you actually have to get rid of tipping. So we decided to just take it on. And we took it on at, uh, at our own peril because what would happen if we would lose great staff members? What would happen if we would lose guests? Because guess what? Doing what we're doing right now makes our menu price go up. It's a sticker shock. Because there's no tipping at the end. Everything's included. What you see is what you get. And so the balance of getting this right for our staff, for our guests, and, and obviously for our investors has been a challenge. However, we continue to do it, and I, I, don't, I don't have any interest whatsoever in turning back because what I can tell you is that in the time since we've done this, two things have happened. Number one, incrementally, we are making major gains in terms of closing the gap between what tipped and non-tipped employees can make. Um, our tipped employees over this, formerly tipped employees over this period of time, are making about 8% more than they were before we started this. Our non-tipped employees are making 37% more. Now that's not massively closing the gap, but we're directionally going the right way. And 
I would say number two, it has allowed us uh, to hire people who, who opt into this program. No one who works for us is doing this because they have to. You could get a job anywhere today. The, the, um, the labor market in New York for restaurant employees is much more abundant with job openings than with candidates right. at this point. So all you LinkedIn people, take, take note of that. Um, but anyone who's opting into working in our company today is doing so because this is the way they want to take their career. They want to work in a restaurant where when they have a station of five tables that they're taking care of in the dining room, no one's wondering, is the only reason you're being nice to me because you think I'm going to give you a bigger tip? So we're hiring people who, like the Japanese term omotenashi, exactly. yeah. are anticipating the needs of other people and delivering without expectation of further compensation. And they know that they will get a raise, they will get an hourly raise, and they will also get a percentage of sales because what we love, there's, when you eliminate tipping, there's no additional incentive to be nice other than at your job. But we retained the incentive to sell more because we created a revenue share for all of our formerly tipped employees. And in some of our restaurants, the, tipped, the formerly tipped employees even share that with the kitchen. So on a really, really busy night, when sales go up, there's money that turns out to be a team commission. And it's not specific to the night you worked. It's specific to everybody who worked that week. That's another advantage, because what that means single mom or dad who used to have to work the Saturday night shift just to make enough money to take care of the family, but therefore couldn't be with their family on the weekend, can now also work on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and do just as well. I want to ask you, you talked about the economy a little bit. Um, there is $4 trillion in consumer debt. It's more than the U.S. has ever seen. Uh, young people, more than young people are, saddled with incredible amounts of student loans. One of the areas where they cut back is spending on food and on going out. I have two questions for you. Does that worry you as a someone who was so invested in this industry and is leading this industry? Two, do you see yourself as playing any role in trying to make this a more stable economy? I think the the best thing we can do to make it a more stable economy is to hire people and make sure to pay them good living wages and have things like family leave, which we, we have a very, very generous policy for family leave, especially relative to our industry, um, and, and obviously provide health insurance for everybody who works here, and provide jobs that have real upward mobility. Um, so I think that I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done in terms of creating jobs for people. Um, I think that with respect to the first question you asked, Food is a pretty good business to be in, um, kind of like barbers. I, I may not grow hair for the rest of my life, but most people are. And people are going to be eating for the rest of their lives. The question is, where are they eating? Mm -hmm. And so I actually don't see uh, a reason to be fearful. I see a lot of reason to be excited about how to innovate and feed people the way they want to eat how they, how and when and, and where they are. So what I mean by that, and this, this is where our industry 
is being shaken up like a paperweight with snow in it right now. Um, when I was growing up in St. Louis, it was either mom went out to shop at Schnook Supermarket and we were having dinner at home. And really the only choice then was, you know, what's for dinner? Mm -hmm. Or on some special occasions, the family would go out to dinner. That was it. We didn't have takeout, take in. We had nothing like that. Today, obviously, the number of ways and places uh, and price points at which you can eat, and eat well, I might add, because I think everybody's ratcheting up their expectations of quality, has just multiplied dramatically. So I'm working in my office, 1985, the day that Union Square Cafe opened. I want lunch. How to leave my office. I might walk across the street to a deli and get a sandwich, but I'm leaving my office. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to a restaurant. And while I'm out at the restaurant, if the phone rings, which is the only way you can reach me in 1985, and no one picks it up, everybody understands that it's lunch hour. Right. Today, everybody's connected to everybody all the time, and there's a huge pressure to be working all the time, staying at your desk, and we have now learned how to bring almost every kind of food to you. And when you're home, you can have a meal kit delivered if you kind of want to cook, but not really. You can have your groceries delivered if you, kinda, if you definitely want to cook. You can have a huge array of food. It can be really good, fine, casual food, inexpensive. You can even have fine dining restaurants delivered to your house. So for us, the big challenge right now is how do you build restaurants with today's mentality in mind. Let's, let's just face one thing. Restaurants have always been kind of a crazy idea. You're building a manufacturing plant, also known as a kitchen, in the most prime real estate in the world, where no one in their right mind would ever build a manufacturing plant with an expensive showroom attached to it. And you have figured out the nuances of how to scale the manufacturing and sales facilities. Well, once delivery becomes a big factor in people's lives, a lot of that changes. Now, what I would argue with the world is that restaurants pretty much singularly today play a crucial and essential role. And that is that the more we are connected using our smartphones, the more we're fooling ourselves. Because even if I'm FaceTiming, or texting, or tweeting, or, or whatever my tribe may happen to be, my LinkedIn followers, it is never gonna replace face-to-face. -to -face. Tech is never gonna replace touch. Right. I think tech that can bring people together, in fact, is the best tech in the world. And I think restaurants, and I think the table at restaurants remains the best place for people to truly get their needs met. All right, that was Danny Meyer, restaurateur and CEO of the Union Square Hospitality Group. If you liked what you heard, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. 
Also, share what you liked about the show using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. You can follow me on LinkedIn and you'll get my newsletter, also called This Is Working. I'm Dan Roth. Thanks for listening. This Is Working is produced by me, Laura Sim, with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Dave Pond is our technical director. Florentia Iriondo is head of original audio and video, and we'll see you next week.